Tonight, I'd like to continue with the investigation of the Satipatthana Sutta using Venerable Analyo's book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, as the basic framework just for exploring both the structure and the range of meanings found in the sutta. We talked last week about the basic definition of satipatthana, that is the four abidings of mindfulness, and the particular mental qualities which the Buddha repeated several times as being necessary for this path of awakening, necessary for liberation. The refrain was, a bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontents with regard to the world. So we discussed what it means to practice with ardor and with clear comprehension. This evening, continue with the exploration of the third quality the Buddha mentioned, and one which in some way is central to this entire sutta. Bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful. Mindfulness. This is the English translation of the Pali word sati. And it really has a central place in every Buddhist tradition. It's mindfulness, or sati, which makes any spiritual undertaking possible. I'd like to read, call it an ode to mindfulness. Uh, This was, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, often people, uh, or the great lamas, uh, there are spontaneous dharma songs, which, which just arise in their minds. So this was a, This was a spontaneous Dharma song to mindfulness by Nyoshal Kenrinpoche, one of of the great Dzogchen masters. He said, mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. I think that sums up the import of this quality of mind. Sati has several meanings has several meanings and several functions, all of which are a key to the growth of wisdom. On one level, the word in Pali means remembering. It has to do with memory. 
And it refers particularly to the remembering of certain recollections, certain wholesome recollections. And these are reflections on the Buddha, on the Dharma, on the Sangha, on one's own ethical conduct and generosity, recollecting the devas and one's own past lives. These are the wholesome recollections that sati or mindfulness can help us with. So although we may not be able to recollect our own past lives, perhaps maybe some of you can, but the other reflections can really serve a very useful purpose and a help for us in this long path of awakening. Because when we reflect on the Buddha, on the Dharma, on the Sangha, it arouses in us, or can arouse in us, a strengthening quality of faith. Because it enlarges the context of our own particular struggles. You know, the many ups and downs of our practice. And we remember that the efforts that we make in our practice are part of a much larger journey. We can get so caught in the midst of struggle with discomfort in the body or difficulties in the mind. And we forget that it's part of a much larger process. Sarah talked a few weeks ago about the life of the Buddha, and she was reading a lot from the different texts. She spoke of how the Bodhisattva overcame the armies of Mara, you know, forces like greed and desire and aversion and restlessness and conceit and a number of others. When I was listening to that talk, and particularly that part of the Bodhisattva overcoming the armies of Mara, it brought home to me the vision and the understanding, the remembrance that the Bodhisattva's struggle was no different than our own. We are engaged in exactly the same process. So what does it mean to overcome these very very powerful forces of seduction, the habits of seduction that keep us narrow-minded and closed-hearted. This is what we're engaged in. We're really, we're really engaged in this most noble endeavor of purifying the heart, of purifying the mind. Now, and it's a path that the Buddha discovered and many other beings over the years have accomplished. So when we reflect on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, it connects us to that long lineage of people who have actually... And this, this is a phrase that mm, occurs many times in the suttas and it always arouses a tremendous uh, joy in me when I contemplate it. It reminds us 
of all of these many people over the years who have done what had to be done. You know, that's like the song of enlightenment as nuns and monks and people completed the journey. Done is what had to be done. And I think, what a glorious moment that will be. You know, when we can all proclaim that. So in reflecting, in the use of mindfulness in this way, this reflection on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, it reminds us that this is possible for us also. Many people have walked this path, as we're doing now. There are also the reflections on our ethical conduct. And this is not something we probably usually do very often. But if we take the time to actually acknowledge our commitment to sila, because we have all undertaken that in a very profound and substantial way, it strengthens our self-confidence, it strengthens our self-respect. It's that understanding that, yes, I can train the mind. I can guard my actions. This is something I can do and am doing. Of course, this reflection on our sila, on our ethical conduct, sometimes gets mixed up with our very Western habit of self-judgment. There was one time when I was practicing in Burma with Saira Upandita, and I'd been going through a dry spell in my practice where for several weeks I was going in and it was just the same thing day after day after day. You know, I was kind of trying to push it all along. Nothing much was happening. Nothing was changing that I could see very clearly. And so Sayadaw, in one interview, he said to me, Joseph, you should contemplate your sila. And he was suggesting that as a way of arousing energy and some joy. And But the first thought in my mind was when he said, contemplate your sila, what did I do wrong? You know, it's like that was, that was the first impulse of my mind. So we need to get past that kind of habit of self-judgment and realize that it is a powerful reflection. And even when there are lapses, because there are lapses in sila, major or minor for all of us, it's our willingness to see the lapses and then to reconnect with our commitment that keeps our practice moving forward. And the Buddha talked of this. We read of it often in the suttas when people would come and acknowledge a wrongdoing, a wrong action. So this is, this is the Buddha's words. It is growth in the noble one's discipline when one sees one's transgression as such and makes amends in accordance with the Dharma by undertaking restraint for the future. So it's a very, it's a very liberal understanding you know, of our training in morality. It's acknowledging that we can make this commitment. It gives a tremendous strength to us. There may well be lapses. And if we see it and understand, 
and let that wisdom be the cause for restraint in the future, our journey, our practice, our development keeps unfolding. So it's reflections on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. It's reflections on one's commitment to sila. The Buddha also spoke of sati as being the recollection of one's liberality, of one's generosity. And if we're so inclined, on devas, the heavenly beings. Because when we do this, when we reflect on the generosity, it brings a, it brings a very real uh, quality of joy to us, and lightness to us. You know, it said the Buddha often began his discourses talking about generosity and how that leads to rebirth in the heavenly realms, leads to the happiness of that, as a way of delighting people's minds. And then when his listeners' minds were open and soft and receptive, he'd hit them with the Four Noble Truths. But we need to prepare the mind to receive the deeper insights I remember early on in my practice when I was in India in Bodh Gaya with Manindraji, he used to give these long raps about the Deva realms. And I loved it. He would just be talking about these beings with bodies of light and you know, the heavenly musicians and the pleasure groves. And then he'd talk about Maitreya, the coming Buddha who's in Tusita heaven, you know, giving Dharma talks. And, and it really did delight my mind. You know, I would just be listening and be filled, filled with a kind of lightness and joy. Of course, there were some skeptics, among, especially among the Westerners, you know, who were listening. So he would always add at the, at the end of this rap, he would say, you don't have to believe this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so in times of low energy... You know, as you're going day after day in your practice, there are times when there's low energy, there's times when there's discouragement. This application of mindfulness, you know, of all of these different wise recollections, can be extremely helpful to us. Because we reconnect with something bigger than ourselves. Another meaning of sati, not just kind of this remembering or the practice of these recollections, but one meaning that's really more continuously applied in our meditation practice and in our lives is sati as presence of mind or present moment awareness. It's the quality of wakefulness, of being awake in each moment. And it's really the opposite of absent-mindedness when we're lost, when we don't know what's going on. Sati, or mindfulness in this regard, is that quality of non-interfering awareness, of bare attention. And in this quality, this evenness of mind, there's not the avoidance of anything, there's not the suppression of anything, there's not the reaction to what's arising. It's simply that openness 
of mind, the attentiveness of mind, the presence of mind. And it's this quality of a detached receptivity that allows for intuitive wisdom to arise. Now, in this openness, we can begin to see all of our experience in a phrase that Manindraji used countless times and which just has embedded in my consciousness and was a big help to me as I would be sitting. It's this quality of bare attention, of open awareness, that allows us to see all experience as empty phenomena rolling on. That's all that's happening. Moment after moment, it's empty phenomena rolling on. Even aside from our meditative practice, this quality of bare attention is something we are all familiar with, I think, in a very mundane way. And that is the experience we have (coughs) when we're listening to music. Just picture settling back, listening to your favorite music. The mind is open, it's attentive, it's not trying to control anything, not trying to control what comes next. It's not reflecting on the notes that have just passed. We're just there, moment to moment, in the unfolding. And often I think the term listening is a very good description for this quality of bare attention. I think most of you have heard that remark by Mother Teresa, uh, which I like so much. You know, when somebody asked her what she says when she prays to God, she said she doesn't say anything. She just listens. And then they asked her what God says to her while she's listening. And she replied, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And went on, if you don't understand it, I can't explain it to you. And it's that sense of just the whole of the Dharma being revealed in this place of listening, of receptive awareness, of open awareness, when we're not trying to control things or make things happen, but we're letting things be revealed. This quality, this mental factor of sati, of mindfulness, of listening, has tremendous power. And there are a long list of its benefits. One of the benefits of sati is that it functions as a guardian of the sense doors. That is, it restrains the mind from papancha. You know, papancha is that the Pali word for just proliferating tendency of mind, which we see so often. So guardian of the sense doors here doesn't mean that we close the senses down. That's not the, that's not the point. But rather that we are mindful <coughs> of what it is that's arising. And the purpose of this guardianship of the sense doors 
is to avoid the proliferation of desires, of wanting, of discontent. We really abide more peacefully. A place that I found this exceedingly helpful and very obvious to see the fruits of is in seeing. You know, we don't generally talk much in the meditation instruction about practicing mindfulness of seeing. And yet, the visual field is a predominant part of our experience. And so I think it's a very useful place to begin to practice mindfulness and practice this guardianship of the sense doors. I had a very striking experience of this Uh, the times when I've gone down to New York to teach, you know, and being in Midtown, and the sense of the visual input is so strong, you know, and especially walking, uh, you know, up Fifth Avenue and all these stores with all these great things in it, and and if I was not being mindful, I could just watch my mind. You know, just going to the store, looking at all these things, proliferating in the possibilities of wanting, very unrelaxed. And then when I would see what was happening and drop back into that place of mindfulness, just seeing, 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 the whole system, the whole mind-body came to a place of relaxation. Everything was still there. I wasn't walking with my eyes closed. But the mindfulness at the eye door really brought a sense of peace. Well, on retreat, there isn't quite that same level of intensity. But I've noticed when I'm on retreat that even going into the dining room at mealtime, you know, and it's not so much here as it was up at the retreat center where there were 100 people, but here, to some extent, you know, there's a little more activity, a little more bustle, there's all the conditioning around food. Often I would just, as I go into the dining room, my note would be seeing, 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 seeing. So instead of the eye or the mind jumping out through the eye door, getting caught up in different kinds of reactions and judgments and whatever, just rested in that place of ease. Sometimes the proliferation of mind through the eye door can get quite ridiculous. Last year when I was on retreat here, my yogi job was cutting vegetables right in the morning. And there were two of us. And the person I was paired with was quite an expert cook. So they were really good peelers and choppers and slicers. You know, and I have very little experience. But one day we got these eggplants to peel. Right? And we each got this eggplant. And he had a knife and I had a peeler. And I got this into my... So I'm just being quite unmindful 
of all this, not noting seeing at all. And I just got this into my head, I'm going to race him. <laughs> and see whether you can peel an eggplant faster with a peeler <laughs> or with a knife. <laughs> and this, is, this kind of totally engaged me. You know, I was totally into this race <laughs> over this eggplant. And just looking back, I mean, I just had to smile at myself. Kind of, I was totally into it. It, was, <laughs> it happened twice. Once I won, <laughs> once I lost. <laughs> If I could have just gone in, you know, and noted seeing and been a little more watchful at the eye door, it could have been a much more meditative uh, period of time. Okay, so mindfulness as a guardian at the sense door. So we don't get caught up in proliferation. We don't get caught up in desires, big and small. Mindfulness has another function. And that is, it serves to balance all of the other factors. Because when we're mindful, we actually can begin to see what factors are in excess, what factors are deficient. If we're not mindful, we don't know. And we can stay lost in an imbalance. This is one of the reasons in the five spiritual faculties, mindfulness is placed right in the middle. Now it's faith, and effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Because mindfulness serves to balance faith and wisdom. When there's too much faith, we can get very dogmatic. You know, faith is not balanced with wisdom. We can get quite dogmatic. It becomes like a blind belief. We get attached to our views. And faith also gets out of balance sometimes when our meditation practice is going quite well and we get over-enthusiastic. You know, the faith factor becomes so strong because there's a sense of, oh yeah, I'm really getting someplace now. And there's a whole stage of insight called pseudo-nirvana. You know, and it's when the factors of enlightenment actually are getting quite strong. The mindfulness is strong and the concentration is strong and the the rapture and the energy. But if we're not really careful, then that faith that comes, you know, out of the over-enthusiasm overpowers the wisdom. And we just get caught there. We get stuck. And it's in that regard that Saida Upandita's most basic question in meditation interviews is like the universal panacea. Because more often than anything else, regardless of what you go in to report, he will say, did you note it? I've just had a great enlightenment experience. Did you note it? I'm filled with rapture. Did you note it? Because it's that bringing back mindfulness to whatever it is, it brings us back to balance. We begin again to see the basic emptiness, selflessness of whatever it is, begins to balance it with wisdom. 
On the other side, wisdom sometimes gets too strong and not enough faith. You know, where we have a genuine insight, genuine level of realization. And then we can stay satisfied with that. Because at that time, we are weak in the quality of faith that actually keeps us open to things beyond our current level of understanding. Instead of laying claim to an insight, okay, this is it, it's the quality of faith, which is not about, in this context, blind belief. It's not that excess of faith, but it's that quality of openness to what we don't yet know. There's a Korean Zen master of the, I think the 12th century, 11th century, Shinul, who was, there's a wonderful uh, book of his teachings called Tracing Back the Radiance. But he said something very apt to this balance of faith and wisdom. He said, faith without wisdom increases ignorance. And to have understanding but no faith increases wrong view. because we get attached. So mindfulness is what keeps both of these in balance. Mindfulness keeps effort and concentration in balance. And this you're very familiar with. You know when there's over-efforting, too much energy, not enough concentration to hold it, it goes to restlessness. If there's too much concentration, the mind is very one-pointed, but not enough energy, it goes to sinking mind. You know, we just kind of fall into a concentrated stupor. Without, without mindfulness, we can easily stay lost in these states. So mindfulness is the guardian of the sense doors, keeps the mind from proliferating into desire, into discontent, Mindfulness balances the different factors. Mindfulness also serves to guard the mind. Mindfulness exerts a controlling influence on the quality of our thoughts and our intentions. Because without mindfulness we simply are acting out all the habit patterns of our conditioning. Now, what's going on in the world? Most people have not cultivated mindfulness to an appreciable extent, and so are just living out their lives, acting out a whole range of conditioned uh, tendencies. Some wholesome, a lot unwholesome. And we see the suffering that results from that. Ajahn Sumedho kind of encapsulized this so well when he said that in our lives, the point is not to follow our hearts, it's to train our hearts. And that distinction, I think, is so valuable because there's such a cultural... uh, emphasis on follow your heart 
as if everything in our heart is noble and pure and wonderful, but it doesn't take much practice to realize there's a lot going on in our hearts. You know, and some is wholesome and skillful, and some is not. So it's not a question of following our hearts. It's a question of training our hearts. In one sutta, which is called Two Kinds of Thoughts, the Buddha described two different ways or two different aspects of how mindfulness supervises the minds. Two different aspects of this supervising and guarding function. And these two aspects can help us understand the nuances of our own practice and how best to apply them at different times. I want to read a little bit from this sutta. Because it's quite interesting. It points to two really different um, aspects of mindfulness. This is the Buddha speaking. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me. Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, and thoughts of compassion. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me, This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. Now this is a key point here. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. And when I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. Then he goes on with another image. Just as in the last month of the rainy season, in the autumn, when the crops thicken, a cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So, too, I saw in unwholesome states danger, degradation, and defilement and in wholesome states, the blessing of renunciation, the aspect of cleansing. So the point of this is the acknowledgement that with unwholesome states of mind, with unwholesome thoughts, we need a more actively engaged mindfulness. 
because as the Buddha pointed out at a later point in the sutta, whatever we frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of our minds. So it's not that these thoughts and mind states don't have any power. If we frequently, if we're in the habit of thinking in a certain way, and we repeatedly think in that way, it inclines our mind. That's what's being practiced. Now there's a biologist named Rupert Sheldrake. And quite a few years ago, I read an article about kind of his research, and he used the phrase morphic resonance. And what he meant by that was his uh, seeing that in nature, it may take a very long time for a particular thing to arise, to happen. But once it does, it's much easier for it to happen again. The next time of its arising happens much more quickly. And that so resonated with my kind of understanding of the law of karma and the conditioning in our mind. Every time we think something or act in a certain way, it becomes that much easier for that same pattern to arise again. And this is what the Buddha is pointing out to us. So with these unwholesome states of mind, we need to kind of be poking the cows, you know, and tapping them and keeping them away from the crops. We need to be actively engaged. Mindfulness in this regard has the power to show us what kinds of thoughts, what kinds of mind states actually are arising. Now, as you know, so many of our thoughts and feelings and moods go unnoticed. Not, of course, here on retreat, but you know, generally in our lives in the world, and for people without training in mindfulness, all of this is going on, and it's unnoticed. We don't know what's being cultivated. So the Buddha's emphasizing, particularly with unwholesome states of mind, mindfulness illuminates what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, and then with the unwholesome, we take a more active stance. And I really, I appreciate it tremendously when he said, when I considered, you know, about a particular unskillful state, when I considered this leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, to both, you know, it leads away from Nibbana, that when he reflected thus, considered thus, the unwholesome state disappeared. So we can use mindfulness in this very active way. With wholesome states of mind, Mindfulness takes quite a different form. We don't need to be guarding the cows so closely. You know, we don't need to be constantly poking them and jabbing them to keep them away from the crops. And in fact, with wholesome states of mind, that kind of overguarding of the mind only leads to more disturbance. So mindfulness of wholesome states takes the form of a more detached observation. 
Now really simple, bare attention, not interfering. And the Buddha gave, gave this example in the sutta. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying out at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, the need for me, so too there was, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states, the, the wholesome states, were there, were present. You know, so in the one, the cowherd is really close to the cows, keeping them from the crops. The crops are in, the cowherd's resting under a tree, He's just aware, oh yeah, the cows are grazing. This is how we want to practice as we develop and strengthen the wholesome states of mind. So as we abide, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, we learn in our practice to find the appropriate balance between active and receptive, between doing and non-doing. This distinction also helps us understand how different of the Buddhist traditions speak of mindfulness. And it points again to further nuances in our understanding of mindfulness. Each tradition uses its own language, but they're all pointing to aspects of our experience. So one aspect of mindfulness is that of a cultivated state, where we really are making an effort to be attentive. It's this kind of effort to be mindful that brings us back to the moment when we're lost. Toko Urgin, who was another of the great Dzogchen masters, He said, there is one thing we always need, and that is the watchman named mindfulness, the guard who is on the lookout for when we get carried away in mindlessness. Okay, so in the Dzogchen tradition, in Tibetan Buddhism, this is called fabricated mindfulness. And in the Theravada tradition, in the Abhidhamma, it's called prompted, prompted consciousness. And in the Abhidhamma, prompted consciousness refers to those mind states, whether by reflection or by determination of will, we make a deliberate endeavor to generate. So prompted consciousness is just what it says. It's prompted by our intention, it's prompted by our effort. But there's another kind of mindfulness which is unprompted. Now when it is well cultivated, when we've practiced repeatedly, so mindfulness becomes the inclination of our minds. When mindfulness is well practiced, it starts to arise spontaneously. There's no particular effort required at all. 
It's just happening. It's happening by itself. So there's prompted and unprompted. There's a further discernment. And this can get very interesting to look at. It's on a more subtle level. Even when mindfulness is happening by itself, it's spontaneous, it's unprompted, it's effortless. We can still discern whether there's the presence of an observer, the presence of a reference point of observation in that mindfulness. Whether there's a sense of someone being mindful or not. There's fabricated mindfulness, prompted and unprompted, when it starts to arise spontaneously. And the last kind is spoken of in the Dzogchen tradition, and it's called unfabricated mindfulness. And that is the innate wakefulness of the nature of mind. The nature of our mind is awareness. And it's called unfabricated because in the Dzogchen tradition, it's not something that needs to be created. It's already here. In the same way that the nature of a mirror is to reflect what comes in front of it. It's not some, it's not some quality that needs to be created because it is in the very nature of the mirror to reflect. And so from this perspective unfabricated mindfulness is the innate wakefulness of the mind, this knowing capacity. So all of these aspects of mindfulness work together in harmony. You know, it's not that, oh yeah, one is right and one is wrong. They are all describing different aspects of our experience. It's a very rare person who can abide uninterruptedly in unprompted or unfabricated mindfulness without the support at times of appropriate effort. But as our efforts bear fruit, as we put in the effort, we cultivate the mindfulness, it begins to become unprompted. It is just flowing along spontaneously and by itself. We actually experience times in our practice of great ease. And at that time, our work is to let go, is to surrender. I was speaking today in an interview with someone There was a time in my practice in Burma. I had been there for some months, and the mindfulness was very strong. It was unprompted. It was just going on by itself, and there was a a great degree of refinement of attention. I was just noticing the most subtle aspects of the arising and passing of, of phenomena, the 
microscopic particle level. And my mind was just so engaged, you know, in looking deeper and deeper and seeing more and more. When I went into an interview, Sayadaw, I reported this great experience I was having. <clears throat> this was after the time he told me to contemplate my sila. <clears throat> so I went in and his only, his only response to this great report I was giving is, you're too attached to subtlety. I didn't know when to stop. It's like when things are going, it's unprompted, the mindfulness is there. That's when we need that more detached kind of awareness. We can trust the process at that point. We don't need to keep digging, which can be its own hindrance. So I think it's helpful just to begin to understand and see how it relates in your own practice. Uh, you know, all of these various aspects of mindfulness, mindfulness as remembering, using, using the different reflections on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, you know, our ethical commitment to sila, you know, our generosity, on the devas, our past lives if one happens to remember them. So we use the reflections, we use mindfulness to arouse faith, to arouse energy, to arouse a certain kind of joy. We understand mindfulness as being this quality of presence of mind, present moment awareness, you know, of bare attention and begin to see all the different ways that it functions in us and can function, whether it's the guardian of the sense doors. So begin to use it in that way and to see for yourself how it functions to free the mind from proliferating desires. To see how it balances the factors, to see how it's the guardian of the mind and how we can discern between skillful and unskillful thoughts and mind states, and applying, applying the more active engagement with the unskillful states, and the more receptive mode with the skillful states, learning to relax back into this natural unfolding. I'd like to close with just a teaching from Ajahn Chah. He said that within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions come and trick the mind into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows them. It forgets itself, and then we think that it is we who are upset, or at ease, or whatever. 
But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Let's sit for a few minutes. These are some lines from a poem by Mary Oliver. The dream of my life is to lie down by a slow river and stare at the light in the trees, to learn something by being nothing a little while but the rich lens of attention. Chant the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. 
Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on April 14, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.